Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's a Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hey Mitch, how's it going? I'm good. Uh, it's been a bit of a, a crazy week, but I'm glad to be to be back here. Things seem to be getting a little bit less chaotic now. Yeah, chaotic is definitely the word. I feel like also just a lot has happened in a very short amount of time, which is just like not even just with us, but like with news and mm. the world and everything. <laughs> it's just a lot. Like I feel like things were kind of quiet for a little bit and now the news cycle has just exploded. Um and there is a lot happening. But I'm glad that you're good. How are you? I too am good. I am finally adjusting to lockdown and becoming a bit of a hermit, to be honest. Like, I don't want to go outside. I, like, am putting off buying groceries that I need and doing my recycling because I just don't want to walk out the front door. <laughs> but it's been fine. Also, I feel like I should say it is NADOC week starting from yesterday. So happy NADOC week. Everybody, uh, please make the effort to immerse yourself in local First Nations history and donate to First Nations organizations. I know, like, it's kind of shit for a lot of people that are under lockdown right now because it's not like we can go out and actually, like, support community events and go to art exhibitions and stuff. But you can read a book. You can still donate. There are things you can do from home. Do it. Anyway. Let's move on to our follow-up catch-up section because I feel like there's quite a bit we want to talk a lot, about. Yeah, a lot this week. We've got a lot to get through. This might be a long one. Maybe I'll start with just some COVID updates because like that's kind of been what has been in the way of a lot of our recording lately. I mean, I was just thinking, you were very lucky that you went up to the farm when you did because mm. had you gone like a little bit later, you may have been stuck there. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, you got like Mitch got back and then I think just a few days later we went under lockdown, so that's some good timing. Uh, Sydney is still under lockdown. There are dozens of new cases daily. It doesn't actually seem to be slowing down, which is kind of a concern, but maybe a slight positive is I think almost all the new cases are like linked to previous cases. So it's not like we're having random pop-ups where nobody can trace, which would have been a bit scary. I think there might've been one or two, but mostly it seems like, you know, kind of inevitable, but mostly contained. There are rumours of lockdown being extended. I doubt it'll be extended past school holidays. Mm. I just feel like that's not very on brand for Gladys. <laughs> Aside from like not being able to see my family and the fact that my fucking couch is still stuck in Bondi, I'm really upset about that. But aside from my <laughs> couch, which is like just my biggest stressor at the moment, I'm pretty unaffected. Like I, I love working from home, so I don't mind not going into the office. And now that I have my fancy new apartment and my new study, I don't give a shit. I don't want to leave my house. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, in a casual retail job, I haven't had a shift in about two weeks and I don't know when I'll be working again for the foreseeable future. So that is certainly an impact. Yeah. Uh, if anything, it's, it's for me, at least in my store, it's, uh, it's worse than the original lockdown. Hmm. Maybe they just don't like me and they're trying to get rid of me. <laughs> it could be both either of us, reasoning. Both of us still worked for like part of the lockdown until the stores actually closed. Like at some point our stores actually closed and then we didn't work. Mm. 
but like for a significant part of COVID and lockdowns, like I worked in Bondi, which is where the original cluster was. And I still worked throughout most of that. And we literally had like hot zones and I was in the hot zone and we would have like a COVID case every day in the Westfield that I worked in and I still had to work. So it's actually like kind of weird that you're not working. Yeah. But it's also sort of the the double bind of the, the retail worker. It's like, you're not doing an essential job yet you're called an essential worker and you're like, why am I, you know, potentially risking my health for mm. this? And the other hand is I need money. Why am I getting work? So Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a complicated situation. It's like, I want to get paid, but I also don't want to die, which I feel like is every worker's experience under (laughs) capitalism. just life, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just be like that. (laughs) I guess so. But yes, moving on to the next, maybe a meteor section of this follow-up. I got to get a new word that isn't meteor. (laughs) Just Mm. hate saying that. Meaty. Okay, Free Britney. Updates on Free Britney. Uh, you guys have probably been following. I've been talking about it a little bit on Instagram. Uh, but a judge has denied Britney's uh, request to remove her father from her conservatorship. I think a lot of people panicked after that happened and thought like, oh, no, how sad. Like, it's over. It's not over. She is still fighting her conservatorship in court. But now because initially, like, she was just trying to remove her father off the conservatorship, but she wasn't contesting the conservatorship ever since her bombshell um, speech at the open court last week. She is now contesting the actual conservatorship as a whole. So this is a new legal case. So Free Britney is ongoing. And while Jamie Spears is still on her conservatorship, hopefully she will just, you know, abolish the conservatorship as a whole. I just had some little tidbits of information that I thought you guys would be very invested in since we're all pretty deep down the Free Britney hole at the moment. Um, but Iggy Azalea, who I <laughs> this is a slight tangent, but did you know she's Australian? Yeah. I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know that. What? I didn't know she was Aussie. Because she's like, I mean, she always tries to play like raised in like ghetto America, but I'm a white girl storyline. You know, she's like wannabe like. No, this is is common knowledge. No, I I believe that. But okay, well, I don't. Please message. Please send (laughs) Sleeha a DM. If you did not know, this is news to you. I did I'm not curious. know she was... Look, mate, I don't know anything about most celebrities, to be honest. So, I will say that. Oh, also, fun fact, she blocked pedestrian TV on Twitter. Oh, really? <laughs> which I discovered when I was trying to cover some shit she said and realized I couldn't see her account because she was blackfishing. But anyway, that's a whole other story. My point is, Iggy Azalea has come out supporting Britney Spears and actually provided her own account of events uh, in relation to working with James Spears, Britney's father. Because, again, something I actually did not know until recently, but Iggy and Britney have a song together called Pretty Girls. I, I don't know. Who, who knew? I don't know a thing about Iggy. I don't even know how the hell she got work with Britney Spears, who was, like, so beyond her league. But anyway, and Iggy, like, talked about the fact that Jamie Spears allegedly, like, pressured her into signing a non-disclosure agreement, like, actually cornered her, uh, backstage, it was pretty much like you cannot go on stage to perform with Britney, despite the fact that the audience is waiting for you unless you sign this NDA. Yeah, so Iggy just said a few things on Twitter about how like he's really controlling and that she believes Britney um, and that we should support Britney because if Britney is saying the conservatorship is abusive, we should support her. And she even like said that Britney's conservatorship like is so controlling down to like the most ridiculous things, like things that just don't really impact anything. She said that Brittany doesn't even get to choose the amount of soda cans she drinks or something, which I just, 
what also i wouldn't be surprised though like i honestly wouldn't be surprised because i feel like when you read about the things that these people have done to britney allegedly i should i guess i have to say allegedly but whatever it just seems like just an attempt at humiliation and control like there's so many things that they have unnecessarily taken control of that really wouldn't matter if britney did herself and it just feels like a bit of a fuck you i don't know that's what i think But there's a really great New Yorker article that just came out. And that's kind of the main part of what I wanted to talk about in this little follow-up. It's really long. It's very comprehensive. But it has a lot of interviews of people that, like, were around and, like, actually witnessed key moments of Britney's life. I'm going to read you in a second uh, the New Yorker's account of that infamous day where Britney locked herself in the bathroom with uh, her youngest son because it was – after that event that the conservatorship really kind of became a thing like that was a deciding factor of people being like this woman needs to be put in a conservatorship she is unwell she's crazy she's a danger to her kids she can't think for herself like this that event is actually really important and I believe we talked about this in the original Free Britney episode but like it's kind of been told again and again that she like didn't really do anything and I like this section of the New, York, New Yorker article because I feel like it really kind of explains exactly why the whole thing was so fucked. So I'm just going to read it to you. Early in January 2008, as a visit with her boys came to an end, Spears began to cry. I just want to keep my kids with me, she said. Why do they have to go? A bodyguard had arrived to take the kids back to Ferdeline's house. Ferdeline is her ex-husband. Every minute with them put her in violation of the custody agreement. She could either give up the kids at that moment or give up the right to see them later on. Eventually, she handed Preston to the bodyguard, but she went into the bathroom with Jaden and refused to come out. According to Sam Lutfi, who is somebody she was friends with for a while, uh, Federline's lawyer called the police and the fire department, which in turn called an ambulance. News crews gathered outside the house with anchors reporting live on the standoff. Four helicopters circled overhead. Lutfi arrived to find the house filled with cops and firemen wielding axes. It looked like a murder scene, he recalled. I pushed past everyone and opened the bathroom door. It was ridiculous. The locks on that door didn't even work. And there she was, standing, pacing, holding the sleeping baby. She was dressed for a night out in Lubitins. The bath is running. You could see the light filling up the bathroom from the choppers. I told her she needed to let Jaden go. And as she's about to hand me the kid, the firemen blow things up. They take the kid, they bring a gurney and strap her down. She didn't say anything. She was just looking at me, staring at me. Lutfi was later told that it was a 5150, an emergency psychiatric hold in which a person having a mental health episode can be involuntarily hospitalized. Paparazzi surrounded the ambulance and followed it to Cedar Sinai Hospital. One photographer posted a photo of Spears on the gurney to his MySpace with the caption, cha-ching, cha-ching. Federline was granted immediate sole custody of the children and Spears' visitation rights were suspended. It was widely assumed that Spears had endangered her children, but those who were around them disagree. There was nothing she'd do to, en- to endanger those kids, Lutfi said. He described her as a mother who would have breakfast made when the kids came over, Dressed to a tea, games and DVDs ready. The housekeeper said, As a mum, I can tell you, Brittany was a good mum. She didn't want to hurt or do anything wrong with her kids. No, I was there and I know all she wanted was to have her kids at least another night. Robin Johnson, the court-ordered monitor who saw Spears four times a week, 
said none of this was her fault. She went on, there were so many people involved in her life that caused all of this craziness with her. I don't have anything derogatory to say about her. It was probably one of the saddest cases that I've ever done in my life. Wow. Right? I just feel like, I mean, is this not what like kind of she and the people who support her have been saying forever that like anytime she was even remotely disobedient um, or anytime she even like vaguely, not even like lashed out, just like didn't listen for like half a second, decided not to do something for half a second. She was immediately strapped down, locked up, drugged, etc. like immediately punished with the removal of her autonomy and the right to just like exist as a person like swiftly. It's just... I feel like this is such a great example of what's been like, that was the start of something horrible. That was the first of many times I imagine that that like happened to her that like, which is, which goes, you know, with what I was saying last week about how she has said in her thing that anytime she misbehaved, they just, they just fucking drugged her. They just told the psychiatrist that like, oh, Brittany's acting out again. She's not listening. We need to put her on lithium. And then they just did. And then she was fucking put in a stupor. Like it's just horrific. Um, I really recommend reading that New York article. Yeah, and like you were saying last week, it's it's ableist. You know, even if it's decided that intervention is necessary, which a lot of the time it isn't, it's just there's no need for such a violent yeah. visceral response. It's ridiculous. It actually like reminds me of stories you hear of like young autistic kids in schools and you find out the teachers have been like tying them up and doing fucked up shit. There was a case not that long ago, um, I believe, that came out of like teachers being exposed for abusing um, autistic and disabled students and like punishing them for not having the quote unquote correct responses. And, you know, we see stories again and again in America of like police calls that like handcuff, you know, autistic like six year olds and then arrest them for having tantrums because like we don't support any kind of disobedience at all, no matter the age or ability of the person. And it's just, I feel like it reminds me of that. It's just another way to punish people for nonconformity. Exactly. I mean, a similar incident with autistic children happened at my school. And it just reinforces this question, especially with Brittany, like who gets to decide who is crazy and how is that used against specific people and typically women yeah. know, for being hysterical, for, for yeah, you crazy violent intervention. Yeah. It's just like, look, she's and even like what the fuck the word crazy even means in this mm. discourse. Like, what does that even mean? But anyway, yeah, look, I just think, again, we really need to kind of think about ableism and all of this because Britney is like so high profile and famous and like if this stuff can happen to her like imagine what's happening to less privileged people without the support system and the resources I was upstairs at home and I heard my mom downstairs being like what the fuck this is disgusting and I went down and she, she was watching a news story of, of about <laughs> Britney Spears the result of the the court case of her conservatorship. So even yeah. my mum is becoming, you know, yeah. a free Britney stan. Bro, everyone, like you just, anybody with even half a conscience is going to be free Britney. Like, let's yeah. be real. But the thing is, it's turning away from this like fucked up, a sort of fun conspiracy theory. And now it's just like- A very tragic, real- Tragic, sad, yeah. awful shit that is reflective of, I mean, the way we treat so many people yeah it's really interesting to see the discourse shift from like a kind of interesting like guilty pleasure conspiracy to like a very real manifestation of everything that is wrong with the world Mm. but yes so i think we'll probably do regular updates of free britney in the follow-up section seems like it's kind of in the media eye now but we'll see what happens with that one okay next one (laughs) we're still in follow-up 
slash catch up, I guess. Mitch and I just recently watched the Bo Burnham Netflix special called Inside, which I thought was really good. I am a Bo Burnham stan, though. Mm. I love that we man. We love Bo Burnham. I love Bo Burnham. Beautiful man. But anyway, I, I mean, look, one of the things I love about Bo Burnham is I feel like he just gets it. I mean, maybe the bar is low for like a lot of straight white men, but because he's a straight white man and he gets it, I'm just like, wow, obsessed. I mean, even with like when he made Eighth Grade, which is something which and I watched together, it's a movie by Bo Burnham. And I thought that was really, it was really incredible how much he seems to understand the teen girl experience as somebody who was a straight white man. And it was like quite beautiful and really like sympathetic. And we're so used to seeing movies where teenage girls are the butt of the joke and they're embarrassing and cringe and we hate on them and we punish them. And it was so beautiful to see a movie just like let a teenage girl be and to kind of just celebrate her and everything that makes her a teenage girl. So anyway, we stand by Burnham. And there was a song in his special. There's like a line in it that actually just like shook me to my core because I was literally talking about this the other day. I think with Mitch, maybe with somebody else about like, there is something I find uncomfortable sometimes about the way certain white people practice politics like and like left-wing politics like the way some left-wing anti-racist white people talk about these issues is uncomfortable to me and I feel like I've only recently kind of started to understand what it is and then next thing you know Bo Burnham is literally reading my mind and saying what it is so we're gonna play a little snippet yes let's contextualize it it comes from a skit of Bo Burnham playing a character. It's like a, a faux kid song where he's like, this is how the world works. He starts off by this really idealistic, you know, everyone helps each other. The bee distributes the pollen. Everything works together. The world is a beautiful place. And then he brings out Socko, a little sock puppet that he holds being the, the sort of the kids show mascot. And then asks Socko to describe how the world works. And then the current clip will play shows what happens next. The simple narrative taught in every history class is demonstrably false and pedagogically classist. Don't you know the world is built with blood and genocide and exploitation? The global network of capital essentially functions to separate the worker from the means of production. And the FBI killed Martin Luther King. Private property's inherently theft. And neoliberal fascists are destroying the left. And every politician, every cop on the street protects the interests of the pedophilic corporate elite. That is how the world works. Really? That is how the world works Genocide the natives say you got to it first That's how it works That's pretty intense No shit What can I do to help? Read a book or something, I don't know Just don't burden me with the responsibility of educating you It's incredibly exhausting I'm sorry, Sako. I was just trying to become a better person why do you rich fucking white people insist on seeing every socio-political conflict through the myopic lens of your own self-actualization? This isn't about you, so either get with it or get out of the fucking way. Watch your mouth, buddy. <laughs> Remember who's on whose hand here. But that's what I- have you not been fucking listening? We are in right, in a- right, wait, I'm... wait, wait, no, please, I don't want to go back! <laughs> oh, oh, I can't go- I can't go back, please. Please. I'm sorry. Are you going to behave yourself? Yes. 
Yes. What? Yes. Look at me. Yes, sir. That's better. White people viewing race issues through their own myopic lens of self-actualization. Exactly. <laughs> I just feel like, I mean, so much about that is so good. I didn't realize Bo Burnham was like so woke. Mm. I love him. Well, I think part of it is that I've been watching Bo Burnham since I was young for like what probably ten years or so. Yeah, probably now. about. And uh, very early in his career as being you know like a 17 year old comedian he did a lot of sort of very edgy humor his songs were always pushing the boundaries he would have uh ironically but like homophobic jokes racist jokes and stuff that was very problematic and it was always at this ironic distance but the thing that i really respect about him is that he doesn't try to dismiss that past in fact that has become part of his identity he's like you know i was problematic and he's not saying that don't cancel me, is that hold me accountable and I'll show that I've grown, that I've changed. Yeah. Actually, I was re-watching Make Happy, which is another one of his comedy specials. It's on Netflix um, with a friend of mine who hadn't seen it before. And there's a section in there where he talks about how, like, we really need to ask more of our entertainers. And then he talks about it. In that, and this is, like, that came out a few years ago. He's 30 now. And I think he was 24 or 25 when that one came out. Um, and he was like, you know, if I ever do shit that's, like, fucked up or wrong, like... Yeah, hate on me. Like, tell me what's wrong. Call me out. Like, stop paying me to do things. Like, take your money and your attention away from me. Like, it's necessary. It's necessary to hold people accountable. Like, don't just, like, defend me and stand me when I fuck up. Don't do that. And Yeah, anyway, I mean, that's a little tangent because we're just both stands for Bo Burnham. But anyway, back to Socko. I found that really interesting and also loved how it kind of worded something I've thought about for a long time. I think a lot of white people really centered it, especially like leftists, especially kind of less oppressed leftist white people really like to center themselves when it comes to race conversations and especially like to center their ability to partake in the race conversation. So, and I mean, it's not specific to race, but that's just my kind of experience in particular um, is like you talk to kind of, you know, quote unquote, like work white people that like really want to be an ally and they're all like, yes, queen, yes, brown girl, go, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then they kind of always want you to tell them what to do to support you. And it's like, how can I support you? How can I help? I just want to see you flourish. I just want to see all brown women flourish. And it's kind of just like, I don't have the time to like mother you and like, And I mean that in like the least offensive way possible, but I just don't. And, you know, I think true allyship would be to like make your own effort to get involved without the constant education of the people of color around you, which is something I've talked about, I feel like a million times. But I think that specific line about like white people viewing race issues through their own myopic lens of self-actualization is like most white people, even the most well-meaning, like really invested in, you know, supporting you white people are still kind of doing it because they like feel good about themselves for helping you. I think it was with you that I was talking about this, Mitch, I feel like a few Mm. days ago where I was kind of just criticizing a lot of white activism because I was just saying, how much truly can white people ever understand race? Like truly, like no matter how well-intentioned they are. And obviously I don't want to alienate white people in that regard. Like I want them to care, but also how much can they ever really get it? Can they get it? Was a conversation I was having because at the end of the day, a lot of white people are helping people of color and supporting all these progressive things 
maybe not because they actually need those things to happen because they don't need those things to happen. Y'all are constantly benefiting from colonialism. Like you're not going to be advantaged by people of color making it in the world. You don't need those things to happen. So are you invested in a genuinely equal future? And are you willing to give up the things you have for that to be there? Or are you invested in this because it makes you feel better about yourself? Are you invested in this as a way to absolve your white guilt rather than like actually giving a fuck about the future of people of color? I think it's a tough question. I know everyone's going to hear that and be like, of course I care about people of color. Like, of, of course that's what it is. But you know, I really like, I really don't think that's true for a lot of people. And again, I don't mean that in like an unkind way. I think there is so much to unlearn. I think there is so much colonialism to unlearn. And I think white people like deep down do understand that they benefit off colonialism and they benefit off the current political structure that we have, at least the race structure that we have. And I think like it kind of comes to show when a lot of white people who are really like great allies most of the time will sometimes not do things because they don't want to be seen as that person or like they're a bit worried about their reputation or they don't want to, you know, they don't want to get in a fight with their racist uncle because like it's uncomfortable. And like there are little things that they won't do. And it's just like, I feel like it's moments like that that kind of make me think, are you truly, truly invested in a future where we're all equal at the detriment of your own rights? Or do you get involved in this because it makes you feel better about the world and yourself like we're all so depressed because of how shitty everything is and a lot of us feel quite helpless and are you helping me because you feel helpless or are you helping me because you give a fuck about my future I don't know I feel like most people probably are doing it as a means to help themselves at the end of the day like helping me makes you feel better you're not helping me at the detriment of anything and I think that's an interesting conversation well I think this is actually a good segue into our last piece of follow-up, which was that I just wanted to quickly recommend an essay by Bell Hooks, the great American writer, writing about sexism, racism, very prolific. Uh, She has an essay called Eating the Other, which if you're a fan of this podcast, I think you will find very, very interesting. And it specifically relates to some of the topics we talked back to in episode six, interracial dating, as well as episode 25, the commodification of work culture. In the essay, she's sort of talking about how from being racist to ethnic people, we have now come to, white culture anyways, has come to fetishize uh, ethnic people. And she says here, a quote early in the essay, within commodity culture, ethnicity becomes a spice, seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. So this sort of relates back to what we're talking about in previous episodes, like the fetishizing of racial difference. But it also, in her essay, she talks about how Ethnic people have come to represent a sort of a primitive nature in which white culture, with no real identity of their own, seek to consume in a pursuit of developing their own worldliness of sorts. Mm. Well, I feel like, yeah, it's the consuming of ethnic experience as something that brings you closer to the earth, to spirituality and to yourself. Exactly. And she talks specifically about conversations she's overheard on the campus that she works at, I think at at Yale, where she talks about overhearing white men walking down about how many, how they want to try and fuck as many people from different ethnicities and how they have like, they're, they're sort of shopping for the different types of people they can have sex with. I think she says specifically, to these young males and their buddies, fucking was a way to confront the other as well as to make themselves over to leave behind white innocence and enter the world of experience. 
And you just talking about Bo Burnham, I think perfectly sort of elucidates this idea in terms of, you know, these white people having sex with as many different types of people as possible would think of themselves as anti-racist. How could they be racist when they find, you know, brown women so sexy? You know, and that's the thing. It's like they, they want it is because it's for their own self-actualization. Yeah. It's for themselves. It's how, what can they gain from this experience? Absolutely. I do, I do think it's important to point out, though, that like that is a really obvious version of that. But the bit that I'm maybe thinking about is really subtle mm. because it's the people that genuinely like do anti-racist work. And it's people that like have shown allyship and support of brown people. But I still just like love the work that you're doing, love that you're supporting us. I'm just genuinely interested in where it's coming from, because like. I don't actually believe that a lot of these people really genuinely are invested in the best future of people of color, especially when like in those circles, something that we also see a lot. I'm just going to briefly bring this back to Bo Burnham just a little bit. is like, you know how Socko gets immediately reprimanded for overstepping. And then it's like, don't fucking forget whose hand you're on. Like, don't forget mm. who's given you this platform. And that it's it, it, like, that's so true. So like, good. it's so true because I feel like that's kind of the masculine version of like white tears, even like the idea, like, you know how a lot of white women will like react to criticism and critical thought with, with tears and guilt tripping and you're attacking me and you're hurting me and stop this. I just came to support you and you're just like so violent and mean and aggressive. Um, and I feel like white men or maybe white people in general, they kind of do this other thing, this reacting with swift emotional violence to remind you where your place is, to remind you that the progressions that you've made, you are making because white people are helping you and they can decide to not help you. So don't fuck with them. Exactly. And that is relevant too. And I just feel like you see that sometimes with a lot of white allies that are like really helpful until you're like, hmm, don't love that thing, that one thing that you kind of said. I know it's like not a big deal, but I just like that felt icky to me. And they're like, wow, like us white people are here helping you, supporting you. Look all the anti-racist work we've done. Fine. You don't want our help? Fine. Fucking see how you do this on your own. And it's like, oh, I don't want you. And then that's when I wonder, like, you obviously never really cared about racism then. And it's obviously a self-actualizing thing for you because if you were really invested in racism, brown people being mean to you wouldn't stop you from being an anti-racist. Exactly. And then Hooks finishes this off with, again, stuff we've talked about in previous episodes, specifically commodification of of wokeness and token diversity, where she says, Concurrently, diverse ethnic slash racial groups can also embrace the sense of specialness that histories and experience once seen as worthy only of disdain can be looked upon with awe. So in there, she's describing how, you know, despite this being another form of oppression and subjugation, uh, ethnic women specifically can embrace this specialness because they're like, oh, finally I'm being, you know, appreciated for my difference, mm. even though that appreciation is coming from a racist place. Yeah, which you're right. That's exactly what we talked about in commodification of wokeness. I mean, that's how I built my career, really. I feel like my best performing articles and the things that get me the most uh, career opportunities in the media sphere when I like talk about my mystical brown woman experiences because <laughs> they are like they're mystical like yeah. I mean I just recently wrote an article on like tanning culture and how problematic it is um and how I'm really kind of anti-tanning culture and it did really well um and just so people were so mind blown by it. I, I loved like how a lot of women of color were like same oh my god someone finally said it but a lot of like white 
kind of especially media people there was an awe there there was like a wow mm. um and it's just like this is me just like talking about something that happened to me but it's so mystical and i'm so wise and it's like i think kind of exactly what we're talking about with white people consuming like poc people or content and then feeling like spiritual afterwards and they're just like now now i'm closer to understanding the earth and <laughs> like definitely felt that way yes so anyways you can find the essay for free just google bell hooks eating the other and it also relates to what we're going to talk about later for our main topic in this episode yeah let's finally get into today's topic yeah i feel like we had a lot to get through that morning but all of it felt like stuff i wanted like i'm glad we talked about so it's really good anyway let's get into today's topic which is related to the olympics that have kind of, well, the Olympics drama that has been happening this last week. There's been a lot of anti-blackness rearing its ugly head in um, like Olympics bureaucracy. And it's kind of prompted a question in the media discourse right now about who gets to be a woman. Like there is currently big discourse on gendered race and racialized gender and the ideas of what or who constitutes womanhood and the racial gatekeeping of like a female identity which sounds kind of like complicated but actually i feel like it get it's quite simple and it, when you actually talk about it it's like wow yeah this has been a thing for fucking forever but yeah so we're going to talk about the racialized gender of womanhood today First, let's build some context. Let me update you on what's been happening with the Olympics in the past week, because it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Uh, so the FINA, which is the international federation that makes rules for competitive swimming, denied an application submitted by Solcap. Solcap is a company that manufactures like swimming caps um, for people who have thick, curly or voluminous hair. Basically, it's like swimming caps mostly geared towards black women who have thick, curly So they submitted an application to the International Federation that makes rules for competitive swimming to have their gear officially approved for black competitive swimmers at every level. The Federation rejected SOLCAP and the governing body declared the caps do not, quote, follow the natural form of the head. Who's fucking head? Who's fucking head? (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, aside from the big phrenology vibes of that whole thing, there's also just like the implication of this decision is that the natural form of a head excludes black women or black people in general. Like the natural form of the head does not have an afro. That's the implication that afros and uh, black heads are unnatural, which is obviously fucked. The other thing that happened is that Shakari Richardson was banned from competing for 30 days over THC found in her system. Uh, for those of you who don't know, THC is like the main kind of component of marijuana. Um, also, you wouldn't know, even if you don't recognize her name, you would know Shakari. She's like got flaming orange hair and like really wild, massive nails. And she's like, I feel like been really popular and like memes and stuff because it's just not the kind of aesthetic you often see on on athletes. And people have really liked that about her. And she's been like applauded in the past for just like kind of being unapologetically a black woman in that regard, like using aesthetics that are typically associated with like black communities, not really giving a fuck, which people like about her. But anyway, um, she was banned from competing and sh- now she can't compete to see if she's like the fastest woman. And people are also calling that obviously anti-black, especially when like she wasn't doing anything illegal by smoking or consuming marijuana. 
and it doesn't give her an athletic advantage. It's not like she was, you know, fucking doing steroids. And just, I mean, we all kind of, I feel like anybody who's interested in like policies around drugs understands that any kind of anti-marijuana policies are generally just anti-black. Even like AOC tweeted how this is all just fucking colonial bullshit and that she should be allowed to run regardless of if she smoked marijuana a few days ago. Like it's fucked. And then the other thing that happened, the third thing that is probably the one that just like is, oh, I'm like, I step and I'm thinking about it. Uh, so two Namibian 18 year old sprinters, Christine and Beatrice, will not be allowed to compete in the women's 400 meters at the Tokyo Olympics due to having naturally high testosterone levels. So basically what happened is that the world athletics says that the female classification is protected and individuals who identify as female but have a certain difference of sex development, which means that they have the same advantages over women as men do over women, can pose a challenge to that protected category. So the sprinters now joining South African runner Casta Semenya, who you guys might know from being banned from competing after the World Athletics ruled in 2018, that to ensure fair competition, women with high natural testosterone levels must take medication to reduce them to compete in middle distance races. So uh, Casa Semenya, she's been in the news for a couple of years now um, for trying to fight that and refusing to take medication to lower her testosterone levels to make her less of a threat to white athletes. She actually recently lost that battle. I believe she was denied again. But yeah, there is obviously conversation right now about the fact that I think it, there's a total now of five black women that have been barred from competing based on high testosterone levels that basically do not allow them to be classified as women, especially with the most recent two runners. They're both like cis women that have been raised as women that like identify as women that like even in the most conservative descriptions of womanhood that do exclude trans identities and other identities, even in like those narrow definitions of womanhood, these women still qualify. So it's like actually just really fucking racist that they weren't allowed to compete as women. Like literally they're just not eligible for female classification. These cisgendered black women are not eligible for female classification. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about today, like black women being denied womanhood because apparently only white cis women are truly women. I want to start this with a tweet by this really great academic called Zoe on Twitter who said, anyone who says sex is biological without acknowledging that interpretations of biological are ideologically, socially and structurally motivated isn't a serious person. Very true. Very true. I think, I mean, she has a really great Twitter thread that I will put in the source link. I'm going to read you a little bit of it though because she's been doing like really good commentary on this whole situation. But she said, no surprise, all five of these women are dark-skinned and African. What's the long history here of transforming dark-skinned black African women into unfeminine things without full reproductive autonomy of the corrective violences against quote-unquote masculine women? What's the intersection of our praise of naturally gifted athletes and the biological essentialist punishment of these black African women runners. At what point does a naturally occurring biological phenomenon become an unfair advantage? Rather, is it a matter of for whom? The same anatomical and hormonal anomalies that see white men celebrated as athletic mutants are criminalized in black or non-white women because of how they disadvantage cis white women. 
No one suggested Phelps reduce his lung capacity or make modify his stride, but to insist non-white women take hormones to level an athletic playing field, the whole sports ban issue feels entirely about quote-unquote not real women crowding and dominating white women's fields. So yeah, that is exactly what I thought when I first read this, because it's just like, even with the whole soul cap thing, like this doesn't fit the natural form of the head. Whose head? Whose head are we talking about here? Because it's specifically made for black athletes, like for their hair in particular. And like, I mean, we have obviously a history of exclusion of black people from the Olympics. Like that's no, that's not news. The same way that a lot of POC were excluded from a lot of things because of white supremacy and racism over time. Like black people being in the Olympics and doing well in the Olympics is something that's kind of only really been allowed recently. And I think this kind of brings to light a discussion that's been happening for a long time in academia about the gatekeeping of womanhood from like a white supremacist and colonial lens because there is a history of like quote-unquote sex differentiation and sex characteristics in like European science that essentially said that sex differentiation aka men and women having different characteristics and being distinct that is a European thing and that was seen as like something that only Europeans had Like it was this idea that white people have very clear sex differentiated characteristics. White women and white men look very different. They behave very differently. White women are inherently, you know, more emotional, sensitive, whatever. White men are more rational, smarter, stronger, whatever. Um, And they have like very distinct gender roles. And then this ideology was used to justify like treating people of color and particularly black people like they are uncivilized and like they're animals so there was a lot of really racist treatment of like the black community and basically like masculinizing black women so that black women and black men are basically the same thing and like the reason they're not different is because they're uncivilized and they're just animals like we don't see sex differentiated characteristics in animals Like male and female animals, we just kind of view them as kind of the same thing. And like, there's not really a difference. But white Europeans, they are more evolved and they have evolved these characteristics and that's what makes them higher beings. I initially read about this in White Tears, Brown Scars. Obviously, this is work that has been pioneered by black academics, but this is where I first came across it. And I'm going to read you some quotes from White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad that basically like thumbs up this fucked up backwards science that has kind of led us to where we are today. The peculiar logic of Eurocentrism was fueled by the rise of scientific racism in the 19th century, which regarded true differentiation of these sexes as a status that had only been achieved by the more highly developed white Europeans. Although brown and black bodies were designated male and female, the science promoted by the American School of Evolution regarded sex difference as a racial characteristic and argued that only white European-derived people had evolved to the point of having distinctly separate male and female brains and disposition. African women, such as Sarah Bartman, the so-called hot and tot Venus, of, just a quick note for those of you who don't know who Sarah Bartman is, she is a black woman that was paraded around like a fucking zoo animal in Europe because of like the curves of her body. She was, like, really over-sexualized. It's pretty fucked. Women like her were exhibited across Europe as examples of defective, oversexed, and under-civilized black women. Bartman's body was regarded as a physical manifestation of her inferior culture, and this quote-unquote inferiority was then rationalized to justify colonization. So Ruby Hamad then goes on to say, 
The damsel in distress reveals that from the beginning, and by damsel in distress, we mean like white women, from the beginning of settler colonial societies, race was gendered and gender was race. Only white men were man and only white women were woman. For hundreds of years, excluding women of color from womanhood has been key to maintaining this racial hierarchy. White men and their female accomplices removed black and brown women from the concept of womanhood and humanity altogether in order to justify, and this is me talking, in order to justify their abuse, violence, rape, and colonizing. Like, it just kind of placing white men and white women as like what men and women are and then removing black and brown women from the definition of woman it conveniently absolves white people of like any wrongdoing against people of color because they're not people you can't hurt someone if they're not a person there's a book on this by zakia iman jackson i've shared the quotes on instagram and i've been seeing it kind of everywhere and i've started reading it and it's really good called becoming human Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. This book is published in 2020. And the author argues that the way we've come to understand and shape gender and sex is rooted in anti-blackness and colonialism with black gender being inherently other, like black gender not being included in gender and sex. Essentially, sex and gender are, you know, inherently racialized is what the author argues. And black women are legitimately not classed as female. Like this is like that book is pretty much explaining how we got to a point now where we it's fucking 2021 and the Olympics can tell black women that they can't qualify under female classification. Yeah, it's dictating who gets to be a woman. And also who gets to decide who gets to be a woman. Exactly. Because like who the fuck even, like, you know, when they're saying, oh yeah, according to the 2018 update or whatever, they don't classify as female. And I'm like, who the fuck wrote this classification? <laughs> who even comes up with these bureaucratic rules in the first place? Like which people in society are we even allowing to create the definitions of woman or like gender in general? I just want to say quickly a side note, reading about this topic, I've seen some discussions here and there you know, trying to deconstruct the the ladies, uh, the chromosomes to suggest that potentially they aren't, you know, they have an unfair advantage because chromosomally they're a male. You know, I'm not a biologist. I don't quite understand this, but also I just don't really give a fuck. Yeah. You know, this is irrelevant to the discussion. I agree. I think the question here is not what chromosomes these women do or don't have. The question here is who decides what makes them a woman? Yeah, because the argument is is that they have a disorder which allows them to produce. That's actually only Castor as well, I should sure, say. Sure, right. So the, just to give a really quick background, there's conversations around Castor being intersex and having a, a Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. But she was like born and raised a cis woman, identifies as a cis woman. They didn't know any, they didn't even know anything about this until like a couple of years ago when she did like a routine she was told it was a routine medical checkup and then they found out that she had a y chromosome and it's thrown this whole thing into fucking chaos but yeah mitch is right the question like who gives a fuck if she has a y because in that context michael phelps would have you know a chromosomal disorder but in his case it's valorized it's privileged it's like well you know that's just you know human achievement lucky him yeah he got the the genetic lottery yeah exactly and that's i think what that um that's what zoe on twitter was talking about which i just said about like how when does it like stop being a gift and stop being like talent and then start becoming like an unfair advantage? Where's like the line? And why is it that only black women are told to tone down their success, to tone down their talent, to literally medicate themselves so they aren't as strong as usual 
in order to level the playing field. That would never be, that would never happen to anybody else. And athleticism itself is full of unfair advantages, but that's fine. Like it doesn't have to be a complete meritocracy in that sense. Like I think what interests me about the Olympics and to be fair, not much does, (laughs) but it's that I'm just seeing unfiltered human achievement. I don't really care if it's necessarily the people that work the hardest. Like a lot of these people are just lucky to have these types of bodies and I'm interested to see them, but there doesn't necessarily have to be this completely level playing field. If some person is born and won the genetic lottery, I cool. Like they deserve to be the fastest person in the world. I just think like if one of the runners was born with just like wildly long legs, would they be told to get a kneecap surgery to shorten their legs and then be like, see, see, like now that we've shortened her legs, is it really skill? Yeah, you can't be too tall to be a basketball player. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like, yes, you are going to have physical advantages that make you better at sport. That's just fucking normal. And like in any other circumstance, it's a good thing. Like we scout tall people to play basketball because that gives them an advantage. But like when it comes to a woman's testosterone levels, who, by the way, like, who decides what is the correct level of testosterone? And this is, I guess, what we're talking about, about the gatekeeping womanhood, because there is a 2018 ruling that like, actually has a number on how much testosterone women are allowed to have before they're no longer classified as women. And I just think, so somebody can be born a cis woman, right? And like have a bit of extra testosterone naturally in their body and they no longer qualify as a woman in these rules. Who the fuck wrote this? And whose bodies are these written about? Because exactly. like who's which woman's body is considered like the height of femininity? Of course we all know the answer to that, and it's white women. Yeah, if you picked these women's bodies to base the average off of, it would be a different story. Yeah. What if we like chose these women to be like the normal quote unquote female body, the normal testosterone in a woman's body. If we did it by like these communities and these people and these ethnicities, it would be different. But what we've done is we've written an entire fucking rule on like what being a woman is and what the biological functions of a woman are based on white women. And then when obviously eventually women of color exist that don't live by those kind of rules that whose bodies obviously don't fucking recognize the bureaucracy of the Olympics they're shunned from womanhood. And I think that it was a discussion on like, what the fuck is womanhood? And it's obviously just a concept. Like if you can write a rule book on what constitutes as a woman and then like women exist that don't fit in that binary, that obviously shows just what a fucking weak and flimsy concept of womanhood it is, right? But that's the thing. Any label is going to be a weak and flimsy identity. And that brings me to something, sort of repeating what you're saying, but maybe from a slightly different perspective, which is that, Whenever we define what it means to be something, we simultaneously and necessarily define what it means to not be that thing. To have an inside, there has to be an outside. This understanding has you know, been at the heart of linguistics for almost a century. And by saying that this thing includes this range of identities, you're also saying that it excludes this range of identities. Uh, so by calling something a tree, for example, uh, you're saying that it's not a car, it's not a building, it's not a cat, it's not a human. You know, meaning is made through difference. Information is difference. Information is difference. And the past 60 years of philosophy has been sort of particularly interested in what's left out when you call something certain things. And this goes exactly to what you were saying about what's left out when you say women. So this brings me to an essay that I actually read yesterday, having no clue that it would ever be relevant to anything that I'd want to talk about on the podcast. It's called The Cyborg Manifesto by Donna Haraway. But yet, it's actually incredibly relevant to this idea of feminism and defining what it means to be 
a woman and what it means to be left out of that category. And so I'll read a specific quote that I think will elucidate some things that we're talking about. Haraway says, For example, a Chicana or US black woman has not been able to speak as a woman or as a black person or as a Chicano. Thus, she was at the bottom of a cascade of negative identities, left out of even the privileged, oppressed, authorial categories called women and blacks, who claimed to make the important revolutions. The category woman negated all non-white women. Black negated all non-black people, as well as all black women. It's this issue of when we say women, we're talking about white women specifically, and when we talk about black people, we're talking about black men specifically. So it seems that women of color are constantly excluded from these revolutionary projects. Haraway actually comes to valorize this idea of women of color as being a revolutionary category, as she argues that, quote, women of color has a chance to build an effective unity that does not replicate the imperializing, totalizing, revolutionary subjects of previous Marxisms and feminisms, which have not faced the consequences of the disorderly polyphony emerging from decolonization, unquote. So essentially what she is saying is that when we use labels like woman, or we're using labels like black or brown or any specific identity, we're still containing people in these boxes. We're still defining what it means to be this thing and thus defining what it means to not be that thing. And when you include some identities, you're excluding other people like we're seeing in this Olympic drama. But the powerful idea of saying women of color is to say that we're actually allowing for a diverse range of identities that have been excluded. They're defined by being an outsider, which means that they are allowed to be various, to be multiple and plural. I think like the term woman of color or people of color is like there is a lot of political discourse on the appropriateness of that term. Um, I know that Ruby Hamad talks a little bit about it as well, but I've seen like a lot of criticism of the term people of color because often now we'll say people of color and black people. There's often like it's a different category because I saw some black thinkers talking about how they don't like the term people of color because they don't want to be lumped in with every other ethnicity when all those ethnicities oppress black people. Like for a lot of black communities, it's not really different whether it's an Arab woman or a white woman because both these women have had slaves that are black. And I agree with that. But I also like I'm kind of in the middle here because I agree as well with this that like woman of color is a revolutionary term because it includes women that are not white, which have been historically excluded and are still obviously currently excluded from the term woman. And then it also includes like ethnic women that are typically excluded from the ethnic. So it's like two kind of lower rungs of a group coming together but yeah I'm definitely in the middle with that one because I I use the term woman of color I think it's currently the best term without having to list every specific ethnicity in that term like yeah it's an umbrella term it's also useful um but there's also like a lot to say about how women of color that are not black do also perpetuate oppression and racism against black women, which is why a lot of black women don't want to be lumped in the woman of color umbrella. So it's like, look, the semantics and the words are a whole different conversation to have. I I would 100% agree with you. And I think even this writer would agree with you. But I would think that Donna Haraway would argue that you need to embrace that contradiction, embrace the irony. Because that's the thing is that when we refuse to embrace the contradiction and we begin to further compartmentalize and use words to segment things, we are going to have the same issue of having an inclusive inside and then necessarily an mm. exclusive outside, uh, which become, which doesn't allow space for various identities. 
Yeah. But it's, it's definitely an interesting thought. And I think it really relates to this idea of how do we define a woman and then what type of women are excluded from this category and then are labeled as we essentially see in this Olympic thing. I think the, these women are being labeled as inhuman in a way, as being yes. primitive. Yeah, well, exactly. They're like being animalized and masculinized. Um, and like uh, the Twitter account said earlier, like this is specific to duck skinned African women like this is specific to black women because we don't see this like if it was a white woman that had really high testosterone levels or like had some kind of biological advantage and she was a cis white woman who fit into the kind of white supremacist colonial perspective and idea visually of a woman we would not be having these discussions Mm. we wouldn't be um, and I think, like, let's bring this back a little bit to, like, colonial perceptions of womanhood. Let's bring this back to, like, gender binaries and phrenology and, like, fucked kind of racist Eurocentric science. Um, and the fact that, like, when we say what is a woman, we are talking about white women. And I want to make that clear that this is not, like, a, a thought. This is true. Like, this is – there are, like, centuries of science and colonial thinking that – our society currently is built on. Like, we're living in fucking colonial Australia. These athletes are competing and these rules are often made by colonial countries. And our ideas of everything we know about gender don't exist in a vacuum. They exist after years of colonial brutality. We really need to be critical about what a woman is. In so many ways, we're currently talking about race but something that is important to note is that these women are cisgendered and so by virtue of that they should technically fit in the narrow definition of womanhood that conservative colonial societies believe like generally when people are transphobic the argument they use to like remove trans women from womanhood is oh they don't have like the female biology they don't have these female sex organs and therefore they aren't true women and now you have these cis women who do have that quote unquote biology but they're still barred from the definition of woman because of that same biology and i think that is like a really important discussion to have because it was never about that Actually, the idea of womanhood was never about what fucking genitals you have. It never was. It might be an argument that they use against trans women, but they don't use that against black women because actually it's gendered. Yeah, and I think it's actually really important to talk about transphobia here because, of course, while none of these women uh, that we're talking about today identify as trans, I feel like the discourse I'm seeing is the devil's advocate who's like, well, if we accept these women, then what else will we accept? Mm. Will we expect trans women who they would say really are men, so actually they have an unfair advantage and they're destroying the whole sport? It's actually just ridiculous. Yeah, it's definitely like, well, if we allow these people to be women and they have higher testosterone, what's next? It's a slippery slope. Next thing you know, we'll have trans women. But even that is like so anti-black as well because Mm. it's the idea that cis black women are the same as trans women in the eyes of like a bigot. Like they don't see a difference because neither of these women to them are real women, quote unquote. And to me, I just want to say that even if that was the case, even if we start allowing trans women into women's sports, like that's a good thing. In fact, (laughs) actually, I would argue for that. It's important to say, despite what others say, that there is no scientific evidence that trans women have an unfair advantage in sports. In fact, there's not even really a clear link between testosterone levels and athletic performance. 
An article in the Scientific American says that studies of testosterone levels in athletes do not show any clear, consistent relationship between testosterone and athletic performance. Sometimes testosterone is associated with better performance, but other studies show weak links or no links. And yet others show testosterone is associated with worse performance. So actually, maybe we should have said this before because this whole fucking talk of testosterone reduces athletic achievement to a hormonal cocktail. Yeah. It's like, well, no, it's not actually just you're born a specific way with specific proportions of certain hormones. Well, actually, maybe there's more to being a successful athlete than just the chemical makeup in your body. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, It's one of those things where we can have all these conversations about like, oh, they want to ban them because it gives them an unfair advantage over white women and they don't see these, you know, women as women, they see them as men or they masculinize them or they animalize them. But it's like, okay, but like the average man is not going to be better at sports than a female athlete either (laughs) because none of this is fucking real and because there is obviously so much more to sports than just like the hormones or genitals that you have. Because if that was the case, Mitch sitting right here as a man would be better than every like female athlete with lower testosterone levels. But he obviously fucking isn't. <laughs> well, we haven't seen yet. <laughs> we haven't tested it. We haven't theory. tested it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, yeah, I mean, even the idea of like conveniently reducing athletic ability to hormones when it comes to oppressing and excluding black women, but not doing that when it comes to like white athletes, suddenly mm. they're like talented. They've trained their whole life. This, everything they have, they built from the ground up. But when we have black women competing, we do everything we can to discredit them. And you can even see that in just like the historic treatment of Serena Williams, for example, and how much she has been, like how much shit she's copped, how much she's been animalized and masculinized and all the like accusations of doping and stuff with her because no way could a black woman be this good. There must be, she must have an unfair advantage. Yeah, exactly. Or she must not be a woman. Mm. And going back to the transphobia and that I think sort of underscores this is that instead of talking about the advantage that transgender athletes have, let's talk about the disadvantages that they have. You know, the article goes on to say that claiming that transgender girls have an unfair advantage in sports also neglects the fact that these kids have the deck stacked against them in nearly every other way imaginable. They suffer from higher rates of bullying, anxiety, and depression, all of which make it more difficult for them to train and compete. I was going to say that actually earlier, um, but in in relation to like the white woman. Mm-hmm. And I love how they want to talk about unfair advantage when a black woman has testosterone. When like, what about the unfair advantage of being a white person? <laughs> like if we want to talk about fucking advantages here, what about class advantage? What about racial advantage? What about the advantages that like an upper class white American athlete is going to have of like a lower class ethnic athlete from a country? with far less resources what about those fucking advantages and exactly that with trans kids like somebody wants to say that trans girls are more advantaged because they potentially may have more testosterone which potentially might make them a better athlete but like what about literally every other privilege that comes with being of every other like non-marginalized group if we really wanted to talk about like getting rid of unfair advantages we'd fucking abolish capitalism (laughs) like i'm sorry honey until we abolish capitalism i don't give a fuck about these conversations about unfair advantages like let's not talk to black women and trans people about unfair advantages in society seriously cool well thank you for listening i think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode which is you our lovely lovely listeners specifically we'd like to thank pia beck rachel sarah liz bell and katie so thank you so so much 
If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mistress.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or you can email us at here'sathingbopodcast at gmail.com. And if you do email us, please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And you can also comment on the Facebook threads if you join the Facebook group. Uh, please do answer the questions, though, if you want to join, because I don't accept requests from people who don't answer the questions. Um, and of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Radio. Bye. Bye. Bye.